Hey everyone, how's it going? I pray that you have had a good week. I know that I have, and God is doing some awesome things to open up doors of opportunity for Calvary Chapel Palos Verdes and what we hope to begin with in-person gatherings here pretty soon. And so stay tuned for details about that. But in the meantime, we'll keep doing these videos. And uh, today we're finishing Colossians chapter 2. So we'll pick up in verse 16 where we left off last week. Now, as a way of reminder, we started to touch on the issue of legalism last week, which I call the silent killer in the church. And Paul was refuting the legalistic teaching of circumcision that uh, the Jews were saying, if you really want to be connected to Jesus, you have to be circumcised. Now, circumcision was a mark of identity for the Jewish people in the Old Covenant. However, in the New Covenant, we've been given a new mark of identity. And Paul was showing that that mark of identity is best shown through baptism. Because our identity as believers is completely wrapped up in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our identity doesn't come from our performance or our obedience to the law. Our identity comes from Jesus's perfect performance in perfect obedience to the law. So the work of salvation that Jesus accomplished, should it does remove any attempt on our part to try to approve ourselves before God by our works. See, salvation, we know fundamentally, it is a gift from God that is to be received by grace through faith. But still, we know this, that many Christians try to show outwardly what God has done inwardly by things that God hasn't actually commanded us to do. They may be good things, but they're not God-commanded things. And that's really the basis of legalism. When a person who has this outward form of godliness, but they lack the power of grace within themselves. And Paul will continue to expose this legalistic thinking that was making its way into the church in Colossae. And guys, it still continues to threaten the church up until this present day. And so we find ourselves right there in the midst of Paul's warning, where he wants to make sure that nobody is cheated by man's empty ideas of religion. He wants us to be established in faith in the real Jesus. He doesn't want anybody to be cheated. We see that word not to be cheated in verse 8 from last week and in our study today in verse 18. And so today the title of this message is Don't Be Cheated. So let's look at verse 16 where it says, Let not anyone judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. So the word beginning there, the word so, or what I think is better translated, therefore, what it's doing is it's connecting us to everything that Paul has just stated previously. And what was Paul just talking about? Well, he was talking about the amazing work that Jesus accomplished at the cross. Namely, that he took away the handwriting of requirements that was against us, and he nailed it to the cross. So that our sin problem was doubly dealt with by Jesus Christ. And it's important that Paul uses that word so, or therefore, because what he is about to say regarding our practice as Christians cannot be true with our, without our position as Christians. 
Now, I, this is so important, I believe, that you'll find in the Bible that whenever Paul is instructing believers in practice, that that's how we're to live, how we're to act, how we're to behave, it always comes after his instruction regarding our position. See, a person needs to be settled in their identity as a child of God before they're told how they need to behave. See, the law tried to tell us how to behave without us being first settled in our identity. And we know that the law did this. It only magnified our inability to keep God's law, to be holy. And we know that the law, the Old Covenant, is powerless to save. That it, it only shows us that we have a keen inability to keep the law. So Paul's saying, let no one judge you. See, the word that Paul uses there carries the idea of someone sitting as a judge uh, or a referee or an arbiter, somebody who's deciding matters for you. And Paul's saying here, don't let anyone sit in this position as judge over your life regarding your freedom from the law. We'll dig into the specific things that Paul's going to say not to be judged about. But I think we need to be clear first about the biblical idea of judgment. You see, the Bible is very clear that God is a judge and that God has the reserved right to judge us, that he is holy and he is just. But the Bible is also clear that humans are not to judge other humans. And the reason being is that our, our, in our humanness, in our sinful, fallen humanity, we are not righteous and we are not holy. And so any judgment that we might make upon another person is probably going to be skewed. So as people of God, we need to be able to leave the responsibility of judging in God's hands because God is good and God is just and he will judge correctly especially guys when it comes to matters of the heart when it comes to thoughts of the mind when it comes to things regarding a person's salvation we need to let god be the judge and every man a liar now paul is saying let no one judge you and he says no one and as i was thinking about that how expansive that idea of no one not anybody I was reminded of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, 3, where he says, But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. So Paul was so serious about no one judging him that he wouldn't even judge himself. Paul's saying, as I evaluate my life, I don't see anything wrong. I don't find any sin within me, but that doesn't make me justified. It's only Jesus that can justify a person. And thanks be to God that Jesus Christ did that at the cross. So what are the reasons for why you and I should not judge one another? Well, for one, we might just be too easy on each other, or we might be too hard on each other. See, God has this ability where he is always right in his judgments. 
I love Psalm 8510. I've been meditating on this verse recently, that mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. See, God takes these things that in our minds seem like opposites, and he brings them together in his justice where they just they meet up, where God can, yes, be holy, but also merciful. And he's the only one, guys, who really has that ability. So continuing now, we're going to let God be the judge, and we're going to try to remove any sense of responsibility that we think we have of being judges. So we're going to talk today about three errors as people wanting to judge uh, we're coming into the church. We're going to talk about legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. And these places of error where the false teachers were judging the saints and faithful brethren, we're going to expose those things and make sure that we don't find any of them in our own lives. So first, we're going to talk about the danger of being cheated by legalism first. So these legalistic teachers in the church in Colossae were saying that Christians had to abstain from certain foods and drinks and that they had to observe certain holy days if they really wanted to be spiritual people. So let's call out this silent killer, legalism, that often still flies under the radar of the church. The reason why it does is people see somebody who might abstain from a certain food or drink or observe a certain day of worship as being more worthy, uh, being more holy, being more righteous. But our righteousness is not from our observances. Our righteousness is from the cross. So a man or woman who abides in the life of Jesus should never try to have their right standing with God based on things that they do or do not eat, things that they do or do not drink, or days that they do or do not observe. So we're going to first touch on food and drink. So this is speaking to the time in the church of Colossae where the Jewish people were saying that if you really wanted to be connected to Jesus, you had to eat kosher. We know that the Old Testament has laws concerning foods that you could and could not eat. But in Acts chapter 10, God gave a revelation to Peter that all foods were purified and that, uh, that, yes, kosher laws had benefit for the Jewish people, but now this was never to be a mark of spiritual identity with God. And the same can be said about festivals that were being celebrated in the Old Testament and and, uh, Feast of Tabernacles or Passover or Pentecost. These were wonderful celebrations that are intended to point us to the Messiah. But what he's saying is, I don't want you to find your identity in the days that you observe. And so Paul's saying, don't let anyone judge you with what you eat or don't eat. Now, this verse right here has often been applied to whether Christians can or cannot drink alcohol. And I could certainly build a case that a Christian can indeed consume alcohol and still have right standing with God. And this is a touchy subject because obviously drunkenness is a sin. But a Christian should never be judged for having maybe a glass of wine at dinner. And we need to understand the complexity of this issue, especially in our culture where the abuse of alcohol is a real issue. But let me say this, and and maybe this is going to bring a certain level of comfort to the heart and the mind of a brother or sister in Christ. Um, I just want to say this, that, that 
you are approved by God because of Jesus. And so a Christian should be able to walk into a grocery store and buy any food or drink in that store without fear or concern that another Christian is going to look in their shopping basket and judge their spiritual standing with Christ. As Christians, we must know that our right standing with God is not what we do drink or what we don't drink, what we do eat or what we don't eat. It's not our role to judge. Now, as Christians, we might choose to abstain from certain foods or drinks because of the sake of a brother or sister in Christ who has a weaker conscience. And we know that 1 Corinthians 8 says that if we cause a weak brother or sister to stumble, that that would be sin for us. And that's what I mean about the complexity of this issue, especially with how alcohol is handled in our culture. But Christians, we need to listen. We need to be able to make a discerning distinction between a weak Christian in matters of conscience and, and by all means, protect those weak believers by laying down your liberties. But we should never worry about offending a legalist. Often, legalists um, call out these certain, uh, these certain foods or drinks in, in other Christians' life and it's not because they have a weak conscience, it's because they're legalistic. So go ahead, offend the legalists all day long as you walk in the grace of God. Read Galatians, guys. See how Paul offended the legalists as, as he walked in the grace of God. Look at Jesus's life and look at how he offended the religious leaders who were being hypocritical. Both Jesus and Paul had no problem offending legalistic religious minds with kingdom realities. They were totally unconcerned if a legalist got bent out of shape. So don't offer a legalistic person a seat in your life to sit as a judge over you. Jesus is the only judge over you. And, and, and if you're listening to this, and that's freeing you to walk in the freedom of God, I, I praise God. If you're also listening to this and you're maybe recognizing that you have been legalistic towards other believers, Jesus extends his grace to you so that you would repent and you too could walk in the freedom that Christ brings to you. So to bring some balance to this, because we know that in Christianity, balance is so key. I want to say one more thing about this, which is that let's not go to the equal and opposite error of legalism, which we would call licentiousness, or a more theological term, antinomianism, which says that people can just do whatever they want because, well, God will forgive us. There's no moral law guiding them in their spirits, and they treat the grace of God as cheap just cheap. They, they do whatever they feel is right in their own eyes with no regard for what God's word says, with no regard for what other people say, and, and certainly don't push back on legalism by going to the equal and opposite error of using your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So legalism bothers me. Licentiousness bothers me. And what I love to see is when the child of God is walking in the freedom of God 
with the holiness of God. And that's where I want to be. So Paul also says, don't let anyone sit as a judge over your life with regard to festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths. This has to do with a certain day that you might choose to worship Jesus. This might have to do with certain uh, things, holidays that you celebrate. I know many Christians that love to celebrate Passover by having a Seder dinner. By all means, do that. Let it point you to Jesus. If you don't do it, it's okay. Uh, so there's much more to do with this. And, and I would say, if you want to learn more about that, go read Romans chapter 14. And it's got this perfect exclamation, uh, explanation of the law of liberty. And so go read that. I like reading it in the New Living Translation. I think it's wonderful. So uh, verse 17 says um, that these certain foods and drinks and holy days are but a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So the reason why we shouldn't get caught up in food or drinks or days of observance is because they're just shadows of the things that are to come. They're merely representations of the reality. Um, you know, I, I think about how what an awkward situation it would be is if you were to walk up to somebody and instead of talking to their face, you started talking to their shadow, right? These days of observance, these Old Testament laws of circumcision, of of kosher foods, they were all meant to point us to Christ and Christ has come. And so we could look right at Jesus rather than the shadow of what uh, those were to represent. Um, so the Old Testament has shadows and pictures of what was to come, but the reality has arrived and it's all in Jesus. So when we eat, it's meant to point us to Jesus because in Jesus, we never hunger. When we drink, it's meant to point us to Jesus because in him, we never thirst. When we enter into rest, for instance, the Sabbath, it's meant to point us to Jesus who gives us ultimate rest. So verse 18 says, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility, in worship of angels, intruding into the things he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. I love that. It says, let no one cheat you of your reward. Because if you allow somebody to sit as judge of your life, you know what that means? It means that you're living for the approval of man rather than the approval of God. And Jesus told the Pharisees that when you go out on the street corner and you pray, you have your reward. When you give so that others can see you, you have your reward. If you're living your Christian life for the approval of man, your reward is here on earth. See, we're called to live according to heaven, and that is where our reward is. We're living to please God. And so he's saying, don't let anybody cheat you out of that. Don't let anybody allow you to focus your Christian life only on how you can please man, but rather get your focus on Jesus and how you can be pleasing to him. Too often Christians spoil their reward for heaven because they're not doing it with the right heart and the right direction. And so many times in my life as a Christian and even in my ministry as a pastor, I have done a lot of things for the approval of man. And it robs you. It robs you of the joy that you're supposed to have. It robs you of the peace that you're supposed to have. And it ultimately robs you of your reward. Now, what he's saying here is there's some characteristics 
that begin to show if you're uh, if you're being led in this direction, namely that there's this sense of false humility. See, true humility that's obviously best represented by Jesus is when when we're doing these outward things, because Christians are called to do good works, to do good, do good deeds, but what is the condition of your heart and mind as you do them? Is it a false humility where it's this outward form of, of godliness, but inside you're just so pride, prideful? And then there's the worship of angels, and this is where we enter into the error of mysticism. The false teachers were saying that, you know, God is so big and so vast and so holy. And so we're lucky if we can just worship angels. And, and listen, <laughs> don't worship angels. The holy ones won't receive it. And the fallen ones will just leave you bankrupt. So don't worship angels. We're commanded to worship God alone who is worthy of our worship. Then it says that we that the, the false teachers were intruding into the things which they had not seen. This is the mysticism that the Gnostics were promoting, where they were having this higher level of knowledge. Christian, we know, we know this. We know this, that the word of God has everything for life and godliness for you to live in. It's plain in the scriptures. If you want to live for Christ, it's all right there. There's no higher plane of understanding. There's no amount of money that you can give to get to this higher level, level of spirituality. It's all plain in God's word as his spirit enables you to walk in the grace of God. Then it talks about being vainly puffed up by a fleshly mind. This is, again, false teachers who... who this knowledge puffs them up and they act as sheep, but really they're wolves. And Paul's saying this carnal, fleshly mindset, we need to be discerning to be able to see that in the false teaching that people try to lead us in. And then verse 19 says, this is what we're to do. Rather than looking to those false teachers who have these puffed up minds of knowledge, let's look to the one who has all truth and all wisdom, which is Jesus holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. So uh, the metaphor of Jesus being the head of the body is so fantastic because if we didn't have our head, if we didn't have our brains, our bodies would not function. You know, you could have surgery on your hand and it's it's not that big a deal, or surgery on your foot, not a big deal. But if you were to have brain surgery, that's serious. Why? Because the head is the control center of the body. And in the same way, Jesus is the control center of the body of Christ. And let's keep him where he belongs. Then we go into uh, this final part of verse 19 where we're talking about increase, that there's this increase from God. And this spoke to me a lot this week because I feel like we have sometimes this pressure as Christians to see growth in our own lives or to cause growth through our influence or through our ministry. And learning again and again that increase comes from God. He's the one that causes growth. And so again, let's, let's be reminded to let God be the one who judges, and let's be reminded for God to give the increase. Judging is not our responsibility, and increase is not our responsibility. That's God's, and so let's 
leave it to him. Then verse 20 through 22, we finish up and it says, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the doctrines of men. Paul again uses that word, therefore, to signal, to turn on a light in our minds. What, what was he just talking about and what is he going into? Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, Jesus is saying, remember your position. Remember who you are, that you've died with him, that you've been buried with him, that you've been raised with him. In the life you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God. You are in Christ. He is your identity, which means you are not of this world. You are have a citizenship in heaven, that the world has a system and there's these basic principles of it, but heaven has a system and there's the principles of the kingdom of God. So where are you living? Are you living earthbound? Are you living with heaven? Are you living the kingdom realities here on earth? Because as a child of God, the principles that govern your life are the principles of the kingdom of God, not the basic principles of the world. And what are the basic principles of the world? Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Kingdom living is righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. Worldly principles is eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Your life is not about what you eat. It's not about what you drink. It's not what days you celebrate. Your life is about Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. So if you've died with Jesus and the world has been crucified to you and you to the world, then you are not living by the principles of the world to subject yourselves to regulation, to subject yourselves to legalism. Paul's like quoting the legalist mindset right here where he's saying, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. I mean, that, that do not, do not, do not, this repetitious command is meant to make us cringe inside. Because dear brothers and sisters in Christ, if we've allowed ourselves to believe that Christianity is just a bunch of do's and don'ts, and mostly don'ts, and we've turned God into this cosmic killjoy, and you're believing that the purpose of the Bible and the church is to tell you everything that is wrong with you and everything that is wrong with the world, and, and you get into this place where you just want to hide away and, and, and read your Bible and, and don't... Don't touch anything. Don't don't look at anything. Don't see anything. And, and you're missing out on the righteousness, peace, and joy that comes from the Holy Spirit, living not uh, not of this world, but still in this world. Then, then I'm sorry. I, I think you're being cheated because the Christianity that I see declared in the Bible. And, and that I see lived out by faithful Christians is when you're filled with the Spirit of God and you're filled with the love of God. And it's not a life of negativity and regulation. Let me say this. Christianity is fundamentally positive, not negative. And so if you're just going around through life kind of always angry and always kind of like, nah, 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 I mean, that's not Christianity. Legalism is just sin management. 
If all you ever do is inwardly looking into your life, looking at how horrible of a person you are, yeah, you're a sinner, but you've been saved by the grace of God. So walk in the liberty and the freedom and the love that Jesus brings to you. See, too often we get into this legalistic mindset where we're trying to control what everybody else are doing and we're just so torn up inside about how we're constantly failing. And we turn into these sin managers. And that's not Christ's life that he wants to give to you. And so verse 23, we end, it says, These things indeed have the appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but they're no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Paul's saying, yeah, legalism, mysticism, asceticism, which right there is the neglect of the body, they all look nice, but they're cheating you of a true and faithful walk with Jesus. See, again, if these errors go unchecked in the church, if they fly under the radar, it might have this appearance of spiritual uh, rightness. It might look like there's a lot of wisdom in it, but the church will be powerless and empty and have no real ability to to fight off the indulgences of the flesh. You'll actually find in a legalistic church more sin than you would see in people walking in the freedom of God. So Paul says there are no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Do you know what has power against the indulgences of the flesh? Grace, the Spirit of God, the Word of God plainly read and then applied into our lives the righteousness and peace and joy that comes from the Holy Spirit, that has the power to fight against the indulgences of the flesh. And so we know our spirits are willing, but our flesh is weak. And if we want to obtain this power, we need to ask and receive by God's grace. Religion is flesh, legalism of flesh, mysticism is flesh, asceticism of flesh. Let's go to the Spirit of God to enable us to do the things of God. Again, Christians, if we want to get our practice right, come back to our position. Come back to Jesus where on the cross he obtained the victory and then he sent his Holy Spirit to give you the power that he has called you to live as a Christian. And so let's practice that. Let's practice our position. And I believe that that you can turn away from self-righteous living and turn to the righteousness that comes only from Jesus Christ, simply by realizing it and looking to the real Jesus. Amen. God bless you.